Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Indivina, and thank you for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Harry Hess, and if you're not familiar with Harry, Harry is a musician, engineer, producer, and now mainly mastering engineer who is based out of Oakville, Ontario, Canada, which is my hometown, which is really cool. And Harry has worked with a ton of amazing artists over the years, everyone from Bare Naked Ladies to Billy Talent and everything in between. And he's even done some remaster projects where he's contributed to working on masters for Ed Sheeran, Madonna, Ray Charles and even more. So lots of very cool stuff in his discography. And this is a really fun, interesting episode. And what I love about Harry is that he's not a mastering engineer that gets really caught up in the numbers and being technically correct in this and that. As you'll hear in this interview, Harry's not afraid to push the limits of audio. And if he clips, who cares? You know, that's part of the sound. And so I think it's really, really interesting because more and more, I start to hear engineers that are like super technical and that follow all the AES specs and whatnot. And, you know, there's always talk about Spotify levels and hitting certain volumes and this and that. But Harry just throws a lot of that stuff out of the window here today, which is really cool and really refreshing. And I think that it really does show you the state of the mastering industry right now where things are the Wild West and where despite the fact that there are so many quote-unquote standards that are supposed to be met, most mastering engineers aren't actually following those and they're kind of going by their own rules because the artists have an expectation of what they want to hear and the, the artists don't care about technical specs and that kind of stuff. They just want to hear masters that are exciting. And I think Harry does a great job of explaining kind of the behind the scenes struggles that a mastering engineer faces today. And as far as where and where you can't stretch the rules here. So I think this is a really fascinating conversation. We get into a ton of great stuff about getting loud masters, defining what a finished song should sound like and how to ultimately get there. I Like I said, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. Harry Hess, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How's it going? Very good. Thank you. Thanks for awesome. uh, having me on. No problem. For people who might not be familiar with you and your background and this industry and all the cool stuff that you're working on these days, can you give us that story? Yeah. You know, I uh, originally started off as a musician, singer in a band, songwriter, and uh, uh, we were talking earlier before we started here. And I actually ended up at Fanshawe when I was like 18, 19 years old, uh, coming out of high school, because I thought, you know, hey, sounds good. I want to be a recording engineer and uh, produce records and all that kind of stuff. So um, I was at Fanshawe for a year in London, Ontario. And then while I was there, I was writing songs and ended up putting a band together and ended up getting a record deal. And so um, still, I kind of do that to this point. And to, just to give you some clarification, I was like 18, 19 when I started doing that. And uh, I'll be 56 this year. So no joke, I've been at this for 40 years, you know. That's awesome. Exactly. And, uh, you know, uh, my time at Fanshawe was really cool, but really... I was kind of more focused on songwriting again and then ended up getting that record deal. We're signed to Warner Music Canada for around 11 years and uh, continued down that road as well as a songwriter, musician, uh, but at the same time, always working on other people's records in any capacity, uh, whether I was just engineering or producing and engineering. And then that 
kind of led to mixing, which I did pretty solid for about 10 to 15 years, you know, in my, you know, mid thirties to mid forties. And then I got intrigued with mastering, which it always kind of blew me away. Even when we were signed to Warner, I'd always attend all the mastering. So even in the early nineties, I would, I would insist on going. So, you know, I'd fly to LA, New York, because that's where all the big mastering guys were at that time. And, uh, just love the process. And it was such a mystery and then later on, you know, like I'm, I'm making records for a living and I've been doing it for like 20, 25 years at that point, And I have no idea like how records are being finished, you know? So that really bothered me that there was an element of record making that I had no idea about. So I started doing the deep dive into mastering, but you got to remember this is like, you know, pre-internet even. So unless you could get a mastering guy to explain what he was doing and walk you through the process which none of them would, by the way, um, <laughs> you couldn't just hop on YouTube and, and get a tutorial or figure out what was going on. So to, to say that you were in the dark would be, uh, yeah, would, would, yeah, would not <laughs> be a stretch of the imagination. It was like, I have no idea what to do. So I just kind of dove in and a lot of trial and error. And, you know, because I was still making records as a producer and mixer, I would tag along. And like I said, because I'm in the room and I'm the client, they can't really tell me to shut up too much or tell me to go away. <laughs> so I use those opportunities to, uh, to get every bit of info I could out of them when I was uh, in the room with them for the day. I think that's a great way to do it. It's like you, yeah, like you said, I mean, there wasn't a, a YouTube or something like that to show you. And uh, yeah, what better way to do it than to actually just be in the room with people who really know what they're doing and watching what they're doing and asking them those questions. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so after a while of watching these people work, at what point did you feel like, okay, I can actually do this for myself now and, and start working with clients and offering it as a service? Well, you know what? I, I, I kind of came in uh, the easy way. And I mean that in the sense that because I built up uh, quite a clientele uh, as a studio owner, I would just start offering my mastering services to clients that we had at the studio. And in the beginning, when I still felt I didn't know what I was doing, or I couldn't guarantee the results or get behind them, I just offered to do it for free. And even if I knew that, you know, we were sending this out to another mastering guy, I would just, you know, want to try and then being able to compare what I was doing, where I landed with it, and what kind of the quote unquote pros we were doing with it was again, another giant leap in learning experience. And, uh, that was my way into it. So I didn't actually come out one day and say, Hey, I'm a mastering engineer and I'm looking for business. I just started mastering records. And then when I could get away with it, my name would end up on it. And I would, <laughs> I would be the mastering guy. And, uh, you know, from being honest, a lot of times in the beginning, I would just even bow out and say, you know, like, Hey, I'm, I'm not feeling great about this. I don't think it's really going in the right direction. So go do what you were going to do anyway, but, but thanks for letting me, you know, kind of give it a shot. And, and those experiences were awesome because I spent so many years at that point, you know, doing critical listening, making records, mixing, uh, that I had a really good sense of what I thought finished records should sound like. I just didn't know how to get over the finish line. And so that, there's no shortcut from A to B. So you just have to put in the time, the effort, 
master as many mixes as possible. And, you know, I was always lucky to have A-list clients in the studio, especially the last, you know, 10, 15, even 20 years that uh, these were quality records and awesome records. And so if I got a chance to work on those, I, I knew just, you know, do no harm first and foremost, and I don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, just give them an en enhanced version of what the mix was. And that was my approach. And to add to that, it always stuck in my mind that whenever I worked with the pro mastering engineers back in the day, when I was in my 20s, whether I was going to New York, LA or Nashville, um, when I was asking questions, they would always comment and say, you know, um, I do a lot of stuff from Toronto and usually I'm redoing it. And I'm saying, oh, that's interesting. And why is that? They say, yeah, you know what? Everybody's just overdoing it down there. They're just trying too hard, which I always took as don't go in there and start adding, you know, 5 dB at 60 hertz just because you think you want to add in all this big bottom or overdo the top end or just start carving it from an EQ perspective. Because, you know, when you're dealing with quality mixers and producers and they know what they're doing, the last thing that you want to deliver is something that sounds violently different from what they gave you. And that would be my number one tip to anybody starting out is that um, people slaved over this and they probably spent a lot of time, money and effort to get it over the finish line, to have a group of people decide that this is the final mix. You know, every subtle nuance of it has been, you know, combed over a million times. And for you to just go in in the end and basically impose your will onto it and make it sound, like I said, violently different, um, that's not a great approach. And whenever I just went soft on it with, with regards to not straying too far off from what they gave me, I always got a great result. People always came back and said, Hey, you get it. Awesome. Really good. Uh, and, and the pros usually don't uh, look for 10 revisions. You know, the people that are busy, that get it, that know what they're doing, they expect you to be the same. And like I said, if you're just giving them back an enhanced version of what they gave you, nine times out of 10, it's thumbs up and ready to go. So I, I always say that to people. It's like shocking to me that the people that are just kind of learning or in the mid stages, they're always the ones that I'm doing a million revisions for. But the top tier major label artists, it's like, I do it once and I'm done. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing that I've noticed. Yeah. There, I mean, there's so much to unpack from what you just said there that I that I think are some really interesting topics to go deeper with. Um, and one of them that I that I really like is that idea that like how you got started with the mastering side of things, because I think there's a lot of people listening to this that, you know, there's some people that are beginners and some people that have been mixing for a while and maybe don't understand the mastering side or whatever. Um, but there's a lot of people that are afraid to jump into this professionally because they're scared of, of like failing at it or, you know, giving yeah. clients something that they're not going to be happy with. Um, but I like that you just took that chance. And like, obviously you had a clientele from your studio and, and that, that yeah. helps for sure. But to, to then be able to put yourself out there and say like, here, here's a, here's a master I did. Let me know what you think. You know, I think that's, that's brilliant. You just got to take those chances. Right. And then as a result, I'm sure you got to a point where you started to realize like, oh, I am beating out these other mastering engineers. Like I do know what I'm doing and that builds your confidence and, and it builds the artist confidence in, in you as well. So, um, I think that's a, I think that's a really good lesson for people. Like sometimes you just got to do it scared. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's no, there's no great time to, to start with regards to, uh, you know, 
experience, resources, gear, and all that stuff, you just have to start because mm-hmm. every time you master something and you can listen to it critically and be your own worst enemy, I think it's important that you not love everything that you do. Uh, a- a- again, another telltale sign of people that uh, I've worked with that have uh, you know, achieved whatever accolades that you might uh, consider to be uh, you know, professional they all have that gene of like, it's never good enough. And I only part with it when I have to, not because I think it's great and I'm done. And, you know, uh, even talking to other mastering engineers, a lot of us have the imposter syndrome is like, cause you know, sometimes I feel like I'm not doing anything. And, you know, when I get a great mix and I'm not doing anything, it is a bit of a weird feeling. And then other times you feel like you're doing a ton And that also worries you because it's going to be so different from what they gave you. So all of those things swirling through your head at the same time uh, kind of take you to a place where you're like, I need to know who I'm dealing with when I'm specifically dealing with mixers that I've been dealing with for 10, 15 years. We have a workflow. We have expectations. They know what I'm going to do. And those relationships, I think, are key that so... My advice to anybody starting is that you want to offer your services to as many producers and mixers that you know and that you can find that are willing to engage with you. And if you're not relying on it uh, for income, let's say, which I don't think you can in the beginning because it puts you in a position where you have to charge for something that maybe you're not ready to charge for. You're not really at a level where you can compete with people that are charging, you know. To put it in perspective, you know, there's Grammy award winning mastering engineers that charge $150 US a song, you know? And so when I started, I started charging $75 a song because I kept that in mind. Then I bumped it up to a hundred and, you know, I, you know, I, I mastered a record two years ago that won a Grammy. And so I can put myself in that category of Grammy award winning mastering engineer. And I didn't raise my rates just because I thought, I think we're at the limit, you know, with a hundred dollars a song, it's just prohibitive to a lot of artists to spend more than a thousand dollars to have their record mastered. Um, which, you know, they're, they're few and far between bands that still have budgets that allow for, you know, all the different iterations of a record, like for you to get in there and do, you know, your vinyl masters, your streaming masters, your CD masters. And I kind of do them all, all those formats included in that price. And, you know, I'm personally just in a position that I've, I've done enough things and I'm at a certain age and arc in my career where I can, I can approach it that way. So, uh, I'm almost like a guy starting off in the beginning that isn't doing this for the money, which is, you know, a a good place to be at. Now I'm actually doing it because I want to do it and I love doing it. Um, and and the people that are in the middle that are, you know, really trying to do this as a business and that's their only source of income, um, I won't lie to you, it's very difficult just to, you know, earn a living as a mastering engineer, especially if you don't have those attachments with regards to clientele that have big budgets or you have those gold and platinum records under your belt that you can use as a as a calling card. So um, yeah, again, my advice would just be just start with people in your area, producers, engineers, mixers, and just start working on it. And then if you're really good at what you do, they'll start paying you to do it. Of course. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing about mastering is that it's, 
it's one of those games where it's like it's small price and you need high volume of clients or high volume yeah. of songs. So it's like you if you're going to get into it professionally, you either have to be really, really good at sales and networking and like getting, you know, bringing bands through the door somehow, or you already have that from something else, you know, like there's, there are people coming through. Whereas like something like a, you know, a production gig, you can charge a lot more money for it. And, but, it, but it's more time in that sense too. And, yeah. and you know, there's, there's always a trade-off, I guess, in that sense. So, you know, it, it is an interesting field because yeah, you do have to be, um, there's a lot that goes into it as far as like the clientele running the business and plus the work and all that kind of stuff too. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you talked earlier about how, like when you were kind of getting into it, you felt like, I mean, it sounded like you, you knew what you were doing with the mixing side of things. You felt pretty good there. Obviously you're running a, a successful studio mixing for a lot of clients. Um, but you mentioned that you weren't sure how records were being finished and yeah. And and then we kind of just, just talked about this idea of like knowing how far to go and how sometimes you you barely do anything and sometimes you have to do a lot. So I'm curious to know for you, like, was there one thing that you can say was like the thing that kind of made it all click? Like, this is how records are finished, because I'm assuming you probably as a mixing engineer were probably feeling like my mixes are good, but you, there was something you were expecting a mastering engineer to do with your tracks, you know? So like, yeah. can you define what that was? That was that finished sound? Yeah, you know, um, it was really, you know, so back in the day, just to back up a bit, you know, um, when mastering was still basically analog and you'd capture it to something called the 1630, um, it, it was still, we were working with levels that were very, you know, based on, on analog and people weren't sending finished mixes in the box where they had control over final levels and could slap a limiter on or you would just get a mix it's just dialed to the top or even red lights flashing which i still get to this day and it's quite comical and really difficult to work with but if you go backwards uh 20 30 years um you know your final mixes were coming off an analog desk and so it was really easy for a mastering engineer to make it look like they've invented fire because they could get all this extra <laughs> volume they're typically cutting to vinyl and you know there there's all these formats that you're not really interacting with as as a producer engineer or even a final mixer so there was that side of mastering where you're it, it's basically a transfer and you have none of those tools at your disposal because you're mixing off an analog desk you're maybe putting it down to dat half inch quarter inch and and those are the formats that you're taking. And now somebody's taking that and enhancing it. And even hearing your mix back 6 dB louder, 8 dB louder can have quite an impact, right? So you didn't have to go out of your way to uh, reinvent the wheel once again. It was just, you know, the, the process of the transfer already turned it into something that was leaps and bounds better and more radio ready or, or you know, vinyl cutting ready than than anything that would be coming off an analog console with just normal levels back in the day and so once we transitioned into more of a you know mixing in the box or capturing mixes digitally that's when things got really weird and confusing because you know um you could deliver mixes that were basically as loud as the master should be and so you know mix engineers started to uh, enhance their mixes that they were sending to the client. And then they would send you, you know, the off the console mix. And then you're supposed to compete with 
what the what the mixer guy sent to the client. And a lot of times you didn't even hear it because you're sending it to the client, not to the mastering. So we went through that stage of, you know, volume wars, even within the team, you know? So, so if I'm getting, a, you know, a really hyped master, uh, sorry, mix, and it's louder than my master, all of a sudden the client's disappointed because they're not aware of how things are working and what they were given. So, you know, really at the end of the day, I think we got to the point where if you started off as a mixer in the analog world, you had expectations what the mastering guy was going to do. And for me, I would deliver something and I was, for the most part, really, really happy with what the mastering guy did. And I will say that when I was signed to Warner as an artist or I was mixing records that were, you know, uh, major label budgets, we always had the budget to go to top you know, top tier mastering guys. So they were the top mastering guys in the world for a reason. They consistently delivered great masters. I can maybe count on one hand where I got something back in like 20 years from a guy that I thought was an A-lister where I went, hmm, that's a little bit odd. Maybe I'll have a conversation with him and uh, fix it right away. No questions asked, which is also an interesting thing. Didn't argue with me. Just went, yeah, I'll go fix that. And uh, got it back and it was awesome. So for me, you know, when I knew a record was finished and sounded mastered, it it was never disappointing to send it to an A-list guy in New York, LA or Nashville. And uh, it just felt really glued together. The EQ was nice, big and warm, didn't sound overly hyped, but it was loud. And it always blew me away how they could get super loud, but it didn't sound like it was, you know... And in the box limiter that was just, you know, doing 10 dB of gain reduction. So that was the journey I was on for many, many years was to find a way to get loud without sounding like I did anything. And, and I think really that is the place where I'm still at now. You know, I run an analog chain. So, you know, I think I'm imparting a little bit of a sound on it by running it through this analog chain, a little bit of color, a little bit of harmonic distortion. But uh, but even that, you don't want to overdo it for certain genres of music. So um, I more more often than not, I'm running through an analog chain, uh, maybe 20 percent of the time I stay in the box. If I'm doing, you know, some jazz stuff or really light touch things, I will stay in the box because it doesn't benefit from any harmonic distortion. But I know your question was, how do I know that a record sounds finished? And so. It's all part and parcel of my uh, of my process and the way that I think that I get there based on what I heard other people doing. And, you know, one of the guys, Stephen Markison, that we used a lot, I mixed a record for Sony in Belgium and uh, had some local guys do some mastering when the budget was a little bit lower. But I said, you know what? This is a major label record. Let's send it to Stephen Markison. Comes back. It's just unbelievable. Just fantastic. Just beautiful, warm bottom. Like I said, super loud, but you could not hear any artifact from it being loud, which again is the key. And there's a guy that's been doing this for, you know, 30 plus years as well. I worked with him when he was in his early 20s and uh, just an amazing mastering engineer and Greg Colby, guys like that, and uh, just incredible talent. And, um, you know, they, they just impart this sound on it. And, and I don't just think it's the gear, it's a combo between the two. And I bet they could, uh, come up with great masters, uh, no matter what they were working on, just the, you need the proper listening environment, obviously. And that's 
what they've established. And that's what I've tried to establish here that I know what I'm doing when I'm making a change and I'm doing it purposely based on whatever deficiency or something that I think I need to do to it. But other than that, I let the mix be the mix and just get it over the finish line without doing any harm as it were. For sure. Well, I definitely want to get into the idea of loud masters because that's obviously a topic that comes up with mastering all the time. But I think before we get there, maybe let's step back a little bit. Like what's, what's your approach to a new project? Like where do you start? What are you listening for? You know, what does that, what does that process typically look like for you? Um, you know what? I do a lot of rock stuff, but, but at the same time I'll, I'll get jazz records and, uh, you know, I'm mindful of the genre obviously, and there's volume targets that are kind of indicative to the genre. And so if you start slamming a jazz record or hype the top end, or just, you know, be too heavy handed with the EQ. I know that the mixer that delivered it to me is not going to like it. Like I've mentioned before. So, um, I first decide whether I'm going to do any kind of, you know, analog chain. And because I do a lot of rock and pop, um, I like what the analog chain is imparting. So sometimes I'll slam into an A to D converter and get my final volume and no digital final limiter in the end, which is still, I don't think I don't think a lot of people are doing that anymore. But that's what everybody did back in the day. That's how they were getting volume. They just had you know high quality uh, A to Ds, and they were just slamming the crap out of them. And that's how they were getting volume. And I still do that eighty percent of the time. And if I feel it could still use some glue, and I know how I'm going to get that in the end with a digital final limiter. Um, then I'll approach it that way and I'll just back off my volume that's going into, um, Sequoia and I'll just capture it that way. And then I'll just do a little bit of augmentation, a little bit of gluing, sometimes even some MS. Um, if I feel like I want to, you know, just approach it a little bit differently. Uh, so I'm doing like maybe, you know, little 10th of a DB EQ moves and then a, a little bit of final limiting. And a lot of times, it's, you know, genre specific in the sense that I don't want to see any overs. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to push the limits where I'm overdriving an A to D to get that volume. So I'll do my final bit of volume in the box for, for certain things as well. Gotcha. So when you're talking about slamming the A to D, so are you, you're just like literally sending your signal out of Sequoia through all of your analog gear and just like cranking the outputs of your gear back into your converter? Is that, is that more or less the process there? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I'm actually, you know, um, I pitch from a, uh, just a laptop that's going into this four cell converter, which is a boutique, you know, um, converter. And then I'm, I'm going out, uh, spdiff, um, out of that converter. And then the analog output of that is feeding my analog chain. And then I'm capturing in Sequoia. So, you know, I'm going into, uh, these EAR, um, compressors which are esoteric audio research. They're basically, I think, you know, the best knockoffs of the Fairchild 660s ever made. And um, then I go into a Mazalik EQ and then the Shadow Hills Mastering Compressor, um, then the A to D converter. And then even after that, I have a, a, a Weiss um, uh, and I can do some digital limiting and, and level there as well. And so, you know, I like the, uh, the sound that Adam parts on it and I, uh, and I, and I 
kind of still go through that chain, even though that's a little bit of an older antiquated uh, approach to it. Uh, you'd be, you'd, you'd love to see some mastering guys that have been doing this for like 30, 40 years. And you see some of the things in their chain and you're like, Oh my God, you, you still use that. And like, like, yep. Love it. You know, I know a guy that uses like an L one hardware, like or an L two hardware and like just old, like crazy gear that, you know, I don't know if it's sonically it's the best thing in the world, but, uh, but, you know, I have a, a lot of high end analog equipment that, that you know, I, I really like the, uh, the sound that it imparts. And so, like I said, super light touch, I'm doing half a dB moves and very rarely would I ever go beyond that from an EQ perspective. As far as gain reduction goes, I'm really doing none. You know, if I see the meters move with regards to gain reduction, I already feel like I'm, I'm already pushing into it too hard. So the, you know, it's gain staging. It's not a lot of any one thing doing a lot. It's just a, a, about little incremental moves up to kind of get it to the promised land. And, you know, once you learn your chain and the, uh, you know, I guess the sonic differences from piece to piece and what they impart on it, then you can make choices, what you want to keep in the chain, what you want to bypass. And so I've got a couple EQs that are always ready to go. Uh, but for the most part, I don't feel like I need to overdo any of that stuff. So I stick with the Mazalik 90% of the time. Yeah, that's it's very interesting. And like, I think you make a very good argument with that about the importance of uh, having a good converter. Because it sounds like the converter is really, like you said, like the thing that's helping you get a lot of that level out there. Um, so for people who might be listening to this and thinking, well, you know, I don't want to necessarily become an analog guy and buy all the equipment, like what are some of the ways that you do that in a digital setting where you aren't running it through, you know, running it back into a converter and through a bunch of other gears, right? Yeah, I mean, simple, simply um, um, start with a little bit of corrective EQ. Then I go into uh, a limiter. Typically, you know, um, I do a little bit of light limiting and then another final limiter, which is more like a brick wall, you know. So I'm I'm not getting any overs or or any kind of uh, peaks that I'm 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 going. Okay, it sounds a bit smashed, a bit heavy handed. So uh you really need a mix though that's going to cooperate with that mindset so uh again because i run 80 percent of my stuff through an analog chain i find that i can take some of those transients if if i get something that's really spiky uh thin sounding i feel like i might want to glue it together in the box before i send it through the analog chain so there's a lot of things you can do there i've used tape emulators i've used you know even like ssl style compression before it even hits the analog chain so if you can just listen to it flat and you can surmise what it needs and if you feel it needs a lot of work then i do that at the front end anyway and i will run it through the analog chain because if i'm if i feel that i need to do that much I can use those tools to help me get there over the finish line. So again, me being a, a guy that does uh, a, stylistically a lot of music that can benefit from those, you know, harmonic distortion and just, you know, basic, uh, you know, tube harmonics and stuff like that. I, I feel nine times out of 10, I just like what the analog gear is doing. I, I, re I really do. And, you know, the spiky transients that you're trying to deal with in the box, it's like now you're using, you know, kind of 
emulation or simulation of the things I have sitting in the rack to deal with it. You know what I mean? Just yeah. to kind of slow down the transients and fatten up the track. So, uh, again, everybody's got to figure that out what they do, but I'll be honest. Like I'm not a gear snob in the sense that, you know, I think there's some amazing plugins out there and I, and I love them and I love using them. It's just, you really have to have a, a good sense of, you know, not wanting to put it on just because you feel in the moment that it, it's helping because a lot of these plugins, if you notice, if you push bypass, just when it's on without doing anything, you think it sounds better because they've hyped that thing up. Not, not a lot of, uh, you know, people are making any product where they're not enhancing it to the sense that, you know, just the average listener goes, Oh, wow, that's better. You know? <laughs> so there's something going on all the time. Just bypass it and you'll see, you know, it's not that transparent. It's not that linear. There's hype in all these things. And so once you start building on all this hype and you start augmenting it too much, now I go back to the thing I said at the beginning. Now you're changing it so much that I bet the guy that mixed it is going to say, wait a minute, what, what, what happened? What have you done? You know, the characteristics of the mix start to change. Now it, it makes it sound like the balances are different. You know, you can't just go ahead and add in a ton of top end or start carving things or add a ton of bottom, take away a ton of bottom because the balances of the mix inherently now are going to appear different. And so if you don't want the vocals to, you know, suffer or stick out, if you just want to keep them where they were, you're going to have to stay true to the mix. Right. So if you start overhyping and overdoing, um, someone's going to be un unhappy at the other end, even though you might think sonically, I've got this to a place where it sounds great and it's way better than what it was. But internally, the balances aren't what the band, the producer and the mixer intended. And now you have a problem, even though you may have a great sounding master in your mind, uh, yeah. because there's, you know, it's, it's a service industry where somebody at the end of the day gives her a thumbs up and they got to be happy with it, you know? So keeping all those political things in mind, cause you have, you've got labels, you've got managers, you've got artists, you've got producers, and then you have the mixer and, you know, the band, uh, ultimately has to sign off on it. But a lot of times when you're dealing with pro bands, quote unquote, they're, uh, they're on the road and they, uh, they basically leave it up to the producer or even sometimes the manager is signed off on masters. And I'm like, Oh, okay, really awesome. And, and label guys, you know, yeah, we got to go, you know, we have a deadline. We're going with it. And I'm like, okay, no one in the band is third today. Cool. Okay. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, yeah it's, it's true. There's definitely a lot of people to please along the way. And, and if there were issues with the master where, you know, let's say you did have to bring out the vocal more like, yeah, rather than adding a whole bunch of top end, which is also going to add all the symbols and all, all that other stuff. It's worth having that conversation, yeah. I'm sure, with the mixer to say, hey, can you give me a vocal up version or something like that? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I kind of on the fly um, make my own decisions with regards to what I'm going to give them back. So uh, unless there's something really where I think we need to go after this, like, uh, like we need a vocal up or whatever, you know, I, I do get, you know, mixers that deliver, you know, vocal up all vocals up. I get instrumentals. Uh, just today I got a bass up one DB and I'm like, okay, well, there's a reason, right. That he sent that because obviously when you sent mix one, somebody comment on i think the bass is a little light so the mixer doing his job said let me give you one with the bass up so i know not to go in and start taking out bottom end 
because they've already signaled to me that they're looking for some size and some bottom. So be very aware of that. And uh, like I said, I get to know the mixers and I get to know the producers and uh, over years and years and years of getting stuff over the finish line with them, I just have a mental note of what they like. And it's different for everybody. You know, the thing that blew me away the most, and I think it's worth mentioning is that, you know, when I was mixing, I had a very strong sense of what was right, you know, where I thought this is bright or this is not, this is dull. This has too much bottom. Um, when I started mastering and I started getting mixes from basically anybody from all over the world, you know, um, it really showed me that there, there's such a huge window of, uh, acceptable mixing practices with regards to top end, bottom end and, and everything else, or even balances where I'll do something in the morning and I'll go, okay, I think I've nailed this, send it back. And they go, Oh dude, you know, it's really dull. Can you brighten it up? And I'll go, okay. So I brighten it up. They're happy. Next, next master. Oh, Hey, this is really dull. It's brighter than the last thing that I just <laughs> sent out. And so the point here is, is that you, you really need to learn to communicate with whoever, you know, is the, uh, not the boss, but, you know, has final say on, on what get, goes out to the world and the finish, uh, gets it over the finish line. And I, I tell everybody, I go, go download the top 10 songs on billboard right now and, and actually do it cross genre, you know, like get a dance track, get a pop track, get a, you know, country track they sound violently different from each other. There's all kinds of different volume uh, targets. There's all kinds of different versions of top end, bottom end. There's thin masters that have number one hits. There's big bottom endy dull masters that have number one hits, you know? Um, So that's not the, the defining factor on your success, whether I do this too bright or too dull or whatever, you know? Uh, But there is a window of acceptability that we've all kind of uh, agreed on, for lack of a better word, you know, like, it's like, this just sounds right, because this is, you know, the mix that I was delivered, this just makes sense to me. And that's where there's no shortcut to get to that point where you can uh, listen to something and decide that this sounds right. Mm -hmm. And it's a mix by mix thing sometimes. And Typically, there's a lot of consistency from mixers that are really good on an album. Uh, but a lot of times you'll get four songs from one mixer, a couple songs from another mixer, and you're trying to make all that fit, you know, especially now in a world where people are delivering singles. They'll go do uh, a single with a producer uh, in a particular studio, particular mixer. And then the next single, they'll just blow that whole team up and just go with different studio, different you know producer, different mixer. And it sounds completely different. And that's their next single. And then even trying to anticipate down the road, will these ever have to live on a record together? A lot of times the answer is, I don't know, because we'll see what happens when we get to 10 songs. We might want to put this out and revisit it again down the road. But um, you can have songs, you know, singles from bands that have recorded records in the same, you know, 24 months, three years, sound violently different from each other, but they're great. And they sound good in their own right. And so there's no real template that you can use. You can listen to other people's masters. You can listen to other people's work. But 
I've always been of the mind that it has no real bearing on what you have in front of you and what you should do with it, right? So I can listen to a, uh, a Taylor Swift master and go, wow, this is really bright and poppy and in your face and super loud. But if I'm dealing with, you know, something that's dull and tubby and that's what sounds right for this song and for me to brighten it up and, you know, squash it to death and make it compete with a Taylor Swift master, it's just the wrong thing to do. So you have to be mindful of, you know, um, what you have in front of you and use your, use your musical senses or whatever you think is, uh, the appropriate, uh, brushstrokes to, to use on this particular thing. So that's why no one will ever get this perfect, you know, because For it's sure. such a, a wide range of acceptability and, and taste that you will, you will never get to a point where you're like, I, I can, I can do this every time and do the same thing. And it'll always work. There always absolutely. has to be some some back and forth involved, no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, tastes tastes are always changing, and even even the artist. I mean, even your taste. You could mix the same song three times in one day, you know, before lunch, at noon, and in the evening, and you could have three completely different masters just based on what you're feeling, you know, in the, in that yeah. moment. So it's like yeah. it, there's it, it's just going to happen that way where we our ears just tell us what feels right. Um, now yeah. you bring up an interesting point of like how a lot of records these days or a lot of artists these days are making singles and they'll do one song at a time and maybe they're working with different producers and, you know, eventually they are putting these songs together and putting, you know, you get 10 songs from different art or different producers, different studios, blah, blah, blah. Um, now, as far as like creating that uniformity between all those songs, you know, what's your approach there? Because I guess in those kind of situations, you know, you're going to have to try to find that happy middle ground, I'm assuming, where... They all flow well together and, and maybe yeah. maybe then you're starting to creep into you know that that original discussion of like what was the intended sound of that song right so what's, yeah. what's your approach there with with kind of putting together multiple singles to make an album later yeah and look the same thing applies to compilations and i've i've done a ton of compilations and a ton of uh you know basic um like best ofs and and things of that nature box sets where they're they're violently different from each other you know record to record and that's where i really think having the analog chain is a little bit of a secret weapon because what i can do with that is on the way into the analog chain i can first of all level match everything so it's hitting the analog chain consistently then i find that tonally the analog chain is imparting something onto the music and the uniformity of it imparting that same sound onto everything works in my favor when I'm doing compilations or doing whatever I'm doing. And, you know, not to uh, contradict to myself, but, you know, if, you know, you don't want to stray too far from what they gave you. But at the same time, if, if you're not being heavy handed with your analog chain, it should be rather transparent, uh, but also impart a sound. And so if you like what i do that's part of it you know and so when i'm approaching something like singles or a compilation where everything's different i do find that that being part of my process is, is extremely helpful because like i said if you run through these ears you're running through those tubes everything has that sheen to it then my eq strokes it has that sheen, that A to D converter. It also has a sound to it. And then I'm capturing. And then again, I like to leave a little bit of room in the box so I can do final tweaks to level match, EQ match, where I can quickly jump from song to song and go, hey, this one's got a bit 
too much bottom, but only compared to the other thing that it has to sit beside and live with, you know, and I would, I would rather sacrifice a lack of uniformity, um, for just general, you know, good sounding master and the mix sounds right. And the songs translating properly. We did this with um, a band called Envy of None, where we had a very long discussion, which is Alex Lifeson from Rush. It's his project. And we talked about some songs having synthy bottom, right? Because there was a big synth, right? You know, and that's big, fat, low extended bottom. And then the next song would have a live bass where the root harmonic is A. And if you know, you're not going to get the same amount of bottom end uh, on a faster song where the bass is playing A as opposed to a synth bass that will go down to a D, you know? And so um, having those mixes beside each other, you're really pointing out the differences between the subharmonic bottom, bottom end of a synth and just, you know, uh, a real bass guitar playing uh, maybe a faster tempo song because faster tempo songs will also read differently in the sense that they, they sound thinner because none of the waves have time to develop. None of the notes have time to develop as opposed to a ballad in E or a drop D tuning where it's just big, slow, lots of space. So if you've got ballads that are uh, big and fat, and then you've got ump tempo songs with bashing cymbals, nothing ever has time to decay. The bashing builds up, the top end builds up, and now all of a sudden you have something thin, brittle, and you just want to be able to, well, you need to be aware of that, first of all, and then how to counteract it with whatever tools you might have. And so there's a lot of things that you need to consider when you're doing things like that. But but th those are the things that I'm doing. Uh, a lot of times, a lot of the heavy lifting happens in the box before it hits the chain. So if I'm dealing with those things, I'll deal with them ahead of time. But, you know, in this case, um the artist was like screw it let every song be what it is and we love the mixes and if this one happens to be thinner than the one before it or after it so be it that's the way we intended these songs to be done and so that's where you're getting your cues from the artist or the producer or somebody that has a vision and i'm not going out of my way to add in a ton of bottom to a song that uh organically doesn't have it mm -hmm. yeah it makes a lot of sense well, an another topic that I'm curious to get your opinion on that is, is pretty similar to what we're talking about here is that I know that you've done a lot of remaster projects as well. And so, yeah. you know, that's that's an interesting to me. That's an interesting challenge in itself, because, you know, most of the time, if something's getting remastered, it, it, it's often a, a record that people care about already. And, yeah. you know, like they're trying to modernize it, whatever. So how does your approach change when it's a remaster project versus something that would be a completely new project for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, it really depends on the time when it was originally mastered. And most of the time, obviously, I prefer to get, you know, uh, a new digitized version that either came off tape or or what have you. Um, but that's not always available. Um, so major labels back, I'm going back even 20 years plus now, they went and digitized all their masters. So if you're dealing with Warner, like I've done Warner compilations where you know, there's Madonna, there's Yes, there's, you know, do sounds of the 50s, sounds of the 60s, sounds of the 70s. And they're all very genre specific to, you know, the recording style back then. And they'll give me, you know, 2496 
wave file masters that were captured actually even 192 sorry yeah 192 uh that were captured off you know quarter inch masters half inch masters and they've got you know pros that are doing those transfers and then you'll get so that's that's the best case scenario <laughs> and then you'll get somebody that's got the cd the you know the you know the 1644 wave files that are ripped off the actual cd and say hey can you remaster this because you know that's the only source that we have and i don't mind that at all because you know if you're talking 70s 80s well if we're talking cds we're talking 80s and 90s i can almost guarantee that i can give you a better mastering job than what was done back then even from the best mastering engineers in the world because the gear just was very prohibitive in the sense that they couldn't get the volume there was no digital limiting um i can nine times out of ten blow that out of the water and that's no you know that's not me bragging about it that's my gear is just it just sounds better like i can take those 1644s run it through my analog chain capture it not do a thing a b it with the master that came out in 1985 and it's just a million times better it's just you know not hard to do so that's why a lot of people are compelled to do it you know so major labels are you know touting uh you know anniversary releases re remastered anniversary releases and look for the most part i think they do sound way better than before at least all the ones that i've got i felt very strongly like oh hey guys really hear this you're gonna be super happy and i do a ton of that yeah well I, i'm intrigued to know like how there's got to be some sort of like internal struggle there of like how faithful do you keep it to the original master versus like what you might instinctively feel with these tracks yeah. too so you know how do you approach that yeah well it's yeah it's sonically enhanced and that's about it it's bigger bigger louder and a bit more clarity and you know volume really can fool a lot of people so if you have something that you're a being the 60 b wider than what i just delivered i literally can do nothing to it and you'll go i'll, I'll pick the louder one every day which yeah. is you know why we had the volume wars and still do and you know the only thing i'll add to that is like everybody still wants really ridiculously loud masters unfortunately well and yeah. that was another thing i was curious about i mean volume has come up many times throughout this conversation and you know it seems like these days there is this industry push to have like well, the, the streaming services and whatnot are saying, like, make quieter masters. And then it yeah. seems like the mastering engineers are like, screw that. We're still going super loud. So I'm curious to know, yeah. like, when it comes to the levels that you're typically aiming for, obviously, it's going to depend on the genres and, and all that kind of stuff. But um, do you find that you have kind of like a, a sweet spot as far as level goes that you try to typically aim for to make competitive masters these days? Yeah, I do. And, um, you know, I'm mindful when I'm delivering streaming masters and I kind of prefer to have the in the box limiter because again, if I'm delivering something with a lot of overs. Another thing to keep in mind is that, you know, when I'm delivering this, if I'm de delivering it to a label, um, major labels, Warner, for instance, they won't accept anything with overs on it. So I can't be, you know, uh, beating the crap out of my A to D converter and delivering something like, I'll get a, I'll get a phone call and they'll say, uh, "Hey Harry, you know that master you sent? Uh, there's uh, fifteen thousand overs on that one song." And I'm going, "Yeah, I know." And like, "Yeah, we're not going to send that through." And I'm like, "Okay, cool. Go back, back it off a couple of dB, reprint, 
put a final limiter on and no overs, right? So I have to go the route of digital limiter in the box. I can't do, I can't do it that way because I know that there's certain labels that just have quality control and, and they're not wrong. I mean, technically you're delivering uh, something that still needs to be converted to another format. It's a lossy format. When it gets converted, there's a, a great danger of, you know, creating overs and having distortion and never being able to fully anticipate the quality of the D to A um, on everybody's playback systems. It's the wild, wild west out there with regards to if I'm listening back off an $8,000 D to A converter and I'm like, it's fine. Well, yeah, it's fine. And nobody else is going to hear it this way. And so once we start going down the rung of quality with regards to D to A, you also need to keep in mind that there has to be some sort of listening experience on the user end that is, uh, that's not giving them a horrible listening experience. So there's so many things to consider. Uh, my favorite masters deliver to deliver are the vinyl masters because uh, there's no digital limit. I'm keeping all the dynamics. I'm running it through an analog chain and that's even creating more dynamics and some beautiful harmonic distortion without plowing into the A to D. So I love those sonically and I wish we could just go with those, but that's not realistic. And I've been accused of delivering many, many loud masters in the past. And I have, and some of them have been number one hits and some of them have been absolutely terrible. So, you know, <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. It, it is, it is a wild time. Cause I, I just feel like there's so much conflicting information out there these days about levels and how loud things should be. And then you hear that things are going to get pulled down and it's like finding that sweet spot and knowing, like knowing that it is going to translate across various playback systems, but also on different streaming platforms and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. it, it is, it is pretty wild out there right now. Um, so as far as like that, there's a couple couple questions I have based on what you just said there, but as far as the um, translatability, I guess you know, like being, you know, having your songs translate, um, yeah. you know, what obviously, yeah, you are listening on an expensive converter, and so like you said, like things are going to sound great in your studio. You've got great monitors and all that stuff. So as far as like making sure that things actually translate outside of your studio, like, are there any steps that you take there to help ensure that? Um, I used to a lot a lot more than I do today. Only in the sense that I was, you know, just doing more quality control checking in other listening environments. And I think I've got it down to the point where I, I'm pretty confident by just knowing what my final volume targets are, how they're going to translate. And um, again, every song, every mix is going to be different. But uh, that's where I think people rely on you to be, you know. The buck stops here. I'm kind of like the last line of defense before it goes out to the world. And everybody's just looking for reassurances that this is okay. And it's the best that it can be. And if that's the case, we're ready to sign off. So um, I don't typically have those discussions with the clients. I just, I just kind of uh, make those decisions based on what I think I'm hearing and, and where I can go with it. I do get comments sometimes where people say, hey, sounds great can you turn it up anymore? And I, if I think I can, I'll go, let me give you another, I'll turn it up half a DB or a DB. Um, and, or if I've already done that, I say, I, I can't, I've I already pushed it to where I was hearing some distortion. I backed it off a touch after that. So I know that if I go back there, 
you're going to get something that's not listenable, or you're going to create some problems with regards to uh, playback scenarios or even conversion scenarios where, you know, you're, you're going to Spotify or Apple. And uh, like I've said, you know, those formats, what we deliver as wave files are not the final masters. They get converted once again, and you open up the, uh, I guess the floodgates with regards to, uh, you know, danger, danger floodgates are being opened every time it gets converted again, uh, especially to a lossy format. And that's where a lot of artifact and weirdness can happen. And if you have a lot of overs, um, you can create problems for yourself. Uh, that being said, every master that was ever delivered in the eighties and nineties, once digital mastering, uh, was, a, was around had overs, you know, grab a CD, stick it in, check it out in your dock, red lights flashing for 20 years. Nobody noticed and nobody cared. It actually <laughs> sounded great. You know, uh, doing a lot of rock. It sounds awesome. You know? Yeah. I don't know if I want that on a jazz record or an acoustic record. So um, the mindset is, um, you know, you, again, you re really just have to know who you're delivering to and what their expectations are. I could deliver a really loud master to, to one person and uh, I can get fired. I can deliver something quieter to someone else and they ask me to turn it up. So uh, again, just know your client in that sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And I love that you bring up that idea of like not being afraid of overs because, yeah, there's so many people. It's like, you know, that's one of the first lessons you learn is don't don't try to get the red light going. And so because of that, people like it's like this golden rule that nobody wants to go near that. And uh, yeah. yeah, but sometimes it is the right move. So, you know, it, it does come down to trusting your ears. And the fact that you even mentioned like, you know, sending masters to a label who you know, by most amateur engineers would think that a label is like the highest clientele you could possibly get, you know, like it, it just, it says a lot about trusting your ears and knowing what's right for the song and, and believing in that. Yeah. 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 And, and again, look, if you can't get it over the finish line, doing what you think is sonically the best, then you have to compromise and you have to play ball, you know? So I may do a master and think that it sounds best this way, but if it's just going to get rejected and I know that, well, then I'll have to approach it differently because that's, that's the, uh, the time we live in right now where, you know, people have got their mandates with regards to how they like masters delivered and how they, um, basically get them into the system and get them out to the world. And you can't ignore that protocol. They, they have their ways of doing things. And it's just funny when you deal with, all the majors and they all do it differently and yeah. some of them wouldn't notice if you delivered it this way and some of them notice but they don't care some of them do their own metadata some of them rely on you to do metadata and uh again it's 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 a wild wild west as far yeah. as that goes so you uh you just do what you're asked and and do a good job and and hopefully you get hired again yeah. So I'm curious to get your opinion on true peak limiters then, because that seems to be like the big thing these days, all these limiters are coming out with true peak. So you never have those overs. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I, I think there's a sonic compromise to it. Uh, you know, whenever I slap on a final limiter in the box, as opposed to just going and, uh, you know, slamming into the A to D converter, I, I always find a narrowing in the stereo field. I find it gives it a little bit of a hug you know what I mean? It takes the edges off the dancey stuff on the outside, which look, sometimes I'll admit, I, I don't mind that, you know, um, 
Because if you've got something that's a little bit overly hyped and can get a little bit annoying when it hits a certain volume target, uh, the thing to understand as well, as you move up and you hit certain volume targets, there's artifact to being loud. You can have the exact same mix or exact same mastering process. If I drive into it more and more and more, listen to the artifact that's coming, listen to the symbols start to change, uh, listen to the characteristics of the mix all of a sudden start to change. And that's the artifact of either driving into a limiter or being too heavy handed with whatever you're doing. So for me, in the sense of in the box limiting, I find that it is actually limiting <laughs> from a sonic <laughs> perspective, yeah. you know? Um, but that's the way 90% of people are delivering their final masters, even, even the big guys, you know, because for simplicity and ease, they're capturing at a certain level that can also be their streaming master, their CD master and their vinyl master. And they're just going to adjust the output of their final limiter or even their input to it based on what goal they're trying to achieve. And that now is the format that they're delivering. So if I'm going to deliver a high-res 2496, and that's my streaming master, uh, I can very easily do that with a final limiter on. I know that I don't want any overs because that's just what I want to deliver in this particular case. If I'm doing a CD master, red lights are flashing, all good. And I might even want to run that again and just, and just do it through an A to D converter. But again, if I'm being honest, it's project by project uh, where I feel that the people at the other end want that and they um for lack of a better word uh, appreciate the effort and the sonic difference between the two so sure. uh my friends that i think are really great at this that have great discerning ears and have been critically listening to music forever they can tell if i've done it with an in-the-box limiter or or not because you know the top end of the snare is different the aggressiveness of the vocal is different it even sits in a different spot because again if you're taming those transients and you know what the snare sounded like before you did that you can't unhear it if you never heard it you wouldn't think anything you just think this is what the snare sounds like this is what the top end of the cymbals are doing this is the top end of the guitars that are panned hard left and hard right but if you ever heard it without it you would go oh wow there's all this little dancing around with the guitars, you know, stereo guitars, uh, cymbals that are just doing different things where you hear them, we hear the clarity and the stereoness of it. It just feels a little bit wider and a little bit more unencumbered as opposed to, you know, having a lot of limiting going on. So if you're, if you're wise, you will do, um, uh, multi, uh, limiters in the sense that I don't mean multi-band. I mean, you have multiple limiters doing little bits as opposed to one doing a lot. Uh, never never a fan of uh, one limiter doing a lot unless your mix is completely unglued because it will glue it together doing a lot of gain reduction. So, But I'll do that before in the beginning stages uh, when I'm pitching it you know, through the analog chain. If I feel I need to glue this and it's really just all over the map, nothing's matching and doesn't sound like a finished record then then i'll approach it that way but you know typically uh, mixers especially in the box they there they love their limiters they love <laughs> their two mix chain with compression limiting and everything's dialed in everything's sitting where it's supposed to go and uh there really isn't a whole lot of dynamics so 
it's it's pretty rare that I get mixes that are just wildly flying all over the place with tons of crazy transients. Usually the mixers dealt with all those things beforehand. So you go back to the don't do uh do as little as possible and you're gonna get you're gonna get happy clients. Yeah, someone else has already done all that work. Yeah. Yeah. I love that's that. right. Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. Hey, this has been really interesting. And and I think that like it you know, coming back to that question of like, what does a finished master sound like? I think that you've done a really great job of, you know, explaining why different songs sound different and, you know, why one mastering engineer is going to sound different than another and how overs are sometimes good and sometimes not good and true peak and all that stuff. You know, I think that's, it's, it's a really fascinating conversation because it really is the wild west. But I think at the end of the day, it all comes down to, you know, when you're, we're all we're all trying to make music that pleases our ears and we're trying yeah. to find people on our team that can help us make that vision come to life and so i think when people are picking you as their mastering engineers because they're familiar with what you've done they're they like that sound that's why they go with it right and when they're making their mix and they're making their decisions on you know how much compression or limiting to use it's because it's that's what feels right to them so um it is a really interesting conversation to have in terms of like what that final what a final song should sound like, or, you know, what a finished sound, song sounds like. Um, yeah. And, uh, but I think, I think you've given us some really good, great insight into, you know, what can be done in the mastering stage and what, what can and shouldn't be done sometimes. And, you know, I think it's, it's a really interesting topic and, and I'm, I'm really grateful for all this information you've given us here today. I think it's great. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing that I, I like to offer to, you know, people that send me, mixes to master i'll just do a quick run through and and give it back to them and a lot of times they'll come back and go oh that's what's happening when we hit that volume target you know because um if i have to do a lot of uh if i'm adding a lot of volume again there there's a there's an artifact that happens with doing that somehow i got volume and it's not as simple as just turning up a fader you know um what happens to the mix when it's a db louder 2 db louder 5 db louder is very different right so if you gave me a mix and i'm adding 6 db of volume you're you might need a second to to climatize to what i've done even though i've done nothing right so i've delivered something but there was artifact or something happened when i hit a certain volume target and there's so many uh variables that uh that add up to that, that, you know, I like to let people hear what that's going to be. And typically people come back and go, Oh, okay. If that's happening, I'm going to tuck my vocal back a bit, or I'm going to turn it up, or I'm going to take that hat down because wow, did that ever come up? Right. Mm -hmm. Or symbols, typically symbols, rizziness of a guitar, top end of a snare. Those things are uh, the things that, you know, you might go, oh, wow, I didn't expect that truncation of a, of a transient. They go, oh, losing my snare a bit. Yeah, because if you want it that loud, the snare was the loudest thing in the mix and that got hit first or the bottom end of the kick drum. And now we're hearing, you know, a bit of limiting or crunchy limiting or the bottom is being sucked in a bit. You're getting some pumping and breathing going on because I had to do a little bit too much. And when I'm doing too much, you're going to hear something different. Again, I know I keep hitting that home, but uh, I can't emphasize enough that the pros say to me and go, I like working with you because you don't F up my mixes. And I go, oh, okay. So take note of that because uh, a lot of people just love to slap on plug as they go. And then I did this and then I did that. And then I put on the tape simulator and now it's in all that bottom. And you go like, okay, yeah, they're not, they're not going to love that, you know? 
Yeah. So. Well, it sounds like, yeah, your analog chain, every piece of it is just adding maybe a little bit more gain here or there or whatever. And yep. it's all coming together. And it's, it, you know, it's like, I, I remember like the first time that I really realized how a limiter can impact your sound. Like I remember playing with like the, the Waves L2 and putting it on a snare yeah. drum. And it's like, that's, to me, that's like the most obvious thing. Like if you start to hit it pretty hard, your snare just disappears. It's like, what, what happened there? Like yeah. all that initial attack was yeah. missing. So it's like, yeah, every piece of gear has its own unique character that it adds. And then when it all comes together as this like, you know, serial chain, it, it all just impacts the next thing. And, and, and it just, you know, makes yeah. it a little bit sweeter down the road. Um, so I, I love that. I, I think that's, uh, that's great advice there. Yeah. And, you know, I've got mixers that will, you know, they will purposely uh, send, you know, a mix with a kick and snare a little bit louder than they would, you know, want it or, or intend it to be, you know, in, in the end, knowing the process. Right. Mm. So what's going to, you know, get rounded out a little bit, what's going to kind of sink into the mix, what's going to happen. And so I even became a way better mixer once I started mastering because I can anticipate the process and what was going to happen. Again, uh, I never mastered or I hated mastering anything that I mixed and vice versa. So I still, to this day, um, if I mix a record, which is very rare, I hire a mastering guy to master. Yeah, it makes sense. But yeah, it'd be great to, to wrap things up here. Um, for people who want to learn more about you, potentially even work with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, what is my website? Uh, hbombmastering.com. Right on. Love it. Uh, you, get, you can get a hold of me there and you can see some of the records that I've done. Amazing. Harry, this has been great. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think it's, it's fun. And, and I think that... Uh, you know, again, you, you've told us a lot of great advice here and, and uh, shared some things that maybe seem like counterintuitive to what people have been taught at like traditional schools, you know, things like clipping and all that stuff. But I think it is a big, I think it is a big part of the sound. And I think it is one of the reasons why masters like yours sound great and why someone who's, you know, just getting started and afraid of red lights and all that kind of stuff, why their masters don't sound as good. It's like you have to just be willing to sometimes take some chances and, and trust the do whatever it takes to get the sound sounding finished yeah and sounding the best it can yeah it's true and you know um i think a lot of people that hop online that like to be uh i don't know they're very studious in the sense that they've read all the articles and they know all the math behind you know how uh, how a limiter works and you know like everything technical and they like guidelines and they like boundaries but you know making music was kind of born from a creative sense that there are no rules and not that mastering really applies to that because it's probably, I don't want to say the least artistic portion of it, but at the end of the day, if you compare it to writing and recording and mixing, we have the least uh, sonic footprint on this. If you compare it to the other people involved, right. And that's not to take away anything from the mastering, but I always say, if if you give me a great mix, I, I won't screw it up. I promise you, it will still be great. But if you give me something that's terrible, that needs a lot of work, there isn't much that I can do. And I think we all understand that, you know, so, um, but, but people kind of want to go textbook on a lot of these things. And I don't think that you can, because it still comes back to, you know, this is music, this is art and uh, a mastering person i think that kind of can serve the client best is somebody that understands how those two worlds 
jive together, right? So if if you want something from me and it goes against my instincts, I'm happy to do it because I, I understand where you're coming from, from an artistic perspective, you know? And sometimes things go horribly wrong when you do that because you're listening to somebody that might not know technically what they're talking about, but they have an artistic vision of the, where, where they want to go with it. And you get that label slapped on you as the mastering guy that thought that sounded good. But at the end of the day, you know, remember the Metallica record where like, you know, they were always catching oh, yeah. heat over that. So like, <laughs> I promise you that was not his idea. You know what I mean? Whether that was Brian Gardner or Ted Jensen or whoever did that. I don't remember. I think it was Ted, but um, no mastering guy sets, you know, the, the table for guys, this is what we're doing to your record. No, 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 no. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, yeah. They're probably like, I want something that's blowing up. I want something that's just ripping your face off. And then they're like, okay, well, here it is. Love it. And then the guy catches all the flack because, you know, they'll write, this guy doesn't even know how to master. It's like, he knows how to master. He was actually delivering yeah. <laughs> something that he was asked to do, which is, is at the end of the day, what we have to do. So um, you have to have your wits about you, but you also have to realize that you know you're dealing with artists and they have a vision and so i think when you can uh, come to a place where you can coexist with the artists and give them what they want and be good technically then things will start working out for you yeah that, that makes sense well again harry thank you so much for taking the time to do this i really appreciate it and uh yeah looking forward to people hearing this i think they're gonna really love it anytime awesome well thank you so that was my interview with Harry Hess, and I really enjoyed that. I really appreciated Harry's approach to mastering. And like I said at the beginning, the world of mastering is so fascinating these days. Like, there are so many differing opinions of how to do things, and really, at the end of the day, it all just comes down to making things sound good. And how you get there doesn't matter, because at the end of the day, as long as the artist is happy, that's really all that matters. And so, yeah, I thought it was really fascinating to learn more about Harry's process and how he doesn't really get bogged down by you know, quote unquote, rules of audio. So yeah, I thought this was really fascinating. And there's definitely some stuff that mirrors what other mastering engineers have talked about on different episodes of this podcast. And then there's stuff that's the complete opposite. But that's the thing that I really love about audio production in general. And part of the reason why I do this podcast is that so many people have so many different styles and different opinions. And you can definitely learn different things from lots of different people and different approaches. And, you, you know, you can take what appeals to you and run with that. So I thought this was a really great episode. I hope you enjoyed it too. If you did, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Every Wednesday morning. And also, if you haven't done it yet, make sure to get your copy of my brand new book. It's called The Recording Mindset, and it is a step-by-step -step guide to creating pro recordings from your home studio. And inside of that book, we cover everything needed in order to make raw recordings that sound better than most people's best mixes. And so we cover everything from how to establish your vision for your tracks before you even start recording. And then based on that, how to actually execute on it, how to plan for it so that you can choose the right gear use the right mic positions, get the proper levels, get the proper takes, make sure your instruments sound great, that you have stereo width in your tracks and they all feel really big. If you want to have great mixes, it always has to start with great recordings. So if you've been struggling to get your mixes to sound pro and you've been spending hours and hours or days or weeks or months trying to mix your songs and never quite getting them to the standard of your favorite records, well, this book is going to show you how to get it right from the start so that you can make sure that that happens in the mixing stage. So once again, the book is called The Recording Mindset, and you can get your copy by visiting therecordingmindset.com. So with that said, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Yeah.
Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com. 